Welcome to Deaf Policy Talks, coming to you from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. In this webinar recorded in February 2021, Charles Shiner, a researcher at the Timor-Leste Institute for Development Monitoring and Analysis, La Homotuk, presents the 2021 Economic Survey of Timor-Leste, including the current economic situation, the state budget, and the dominance of the Petroleum Fund in state finances. He also looks at future oil and gas possibilities, including Greater Sunrise and the Tasi Mane Petroleum Infrastructure Project. The presentation is a draft of a forthcoming paper in the Pacific Survey Series, published in the Asia and the Pacific Policy Studies Journal. The webinar is chaired by Professor Stephen Howes, Director of the Development Policy Centre. So welcome everyone to our Development Policy Centre webinar, uh, which is uh, today our first one for the year, and uh, today on the Timor-Leste 2021 Economic Survey. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre here in Canberra. So I'm uh, I'm chairing uh, today's seminar, and our speaker for today, uh, Charlie Shiner. So I'll introduce uh, Charlie in a minute, but let me just give you a bit of context uh, behind this survey, in case you're wondering why we're we doing this. Uh, of course. Uh, at the Development Policy Centre here at the ANU, we have a strong focus on the Pacific and Timor-Leste as well. Even though Timor-Leste doesn't self-identify as a Pacific nation, it's obviously a very close neighbour to Australia and faces a lot of similar challenges. And one of our projects uh, that we have is our journal, the Asia uh, and the Pacific Policy Studies Journal, published by Wiley. And one of the features of that journal are these economic surveys uh, on the Pacific and Timor-Leste. It's, it's a recent thing, uh, and it's, it's, it's something we used to do in the past. We stopped for a while. We started again in the last couple of years. And so far, we've done surveys on Papua New Guinea, on Kiribati, and on Fiji. And these are meant to be little frank uh, assessments, or up, frank and up-to-date and interesting assessments of these different countries that you know most people wouldn't be up to date on, but might be interested in. So the Timor-Leste survey is the latest in the series. Uh, it has the series has been a bit disrupted, like lots of things, uh, due to COVID nineteen. But we're still persisting with them, and uh, I do want to encourage anyone if you if you've got an, we are looking for authors uh, for surveys on other Pacific countries. If you've got an interest. Uh, please do contact us and, of course, do check out uh, the journal. It is uh, full of interesting material on Asia and does have a specific focus on the Pacific region. So that's by way of uh, introduction, but we're delighted uh, today to have Charlie Shiner to present his 2021 economic survey. I'm sure many of you uh, will know Charlie. He is a researcher at Lao Hamatuk, the Timor-Leste Institute for Development Monitoring and Analysis. He's currently in New York, again, due to, to COVID, but he has been living in Timor-Leste for the last 20 years and before that was a supporter of the Timor-Leste independence movement uh, based in the US. I'm sure, you know, many of you, if you follow Timor-Leste, you would have heard Charlie before or read his uh, presentation. He's performed an invaluable public service in keeping us all informed of economic developments and challenges in that country. And, um, you know, I think, I'm sure you will find today uh, really informative, thought-provoking and useful. Uh, we do have limited time, so Charles is going to keep his remarks, uh, sorry, his presentation uh, to within 35 minutes, and that should allow it's a good time for discussion because, you know, this is the draft. He's presenting his draft, and based on the feedback he gets today, you know, we're going to finalise that and publish it in the journal. So we're really looking forward to your feedback. Uh, we won't interrupt. Charles, during his presentation, unless there's something really, you know, really critical. All right. Well, I think I've uh, covered off all the introductory remarks. So thanks again, all of you for joining. Uh, thanks to you, Charlie, for joining us from New York and for we're looking forward to your presentation. So over to you. Well, thank you, Stephen and Ari and the other people that organized this. And I'm, I'm honored to, to be here. I mean, I've, I've been at ANU Timor-Leste events a few times. But I think this is the first global event with participants from all over the world that I've been to. It's one of the slight consolations for 
not being able to be in Timor last year, not being able to travel, is that we can use these new media. Um, as Stephen said, Lahomartuk is an independent Timorese nonpartisan research and advocacy NGO. It started in 2000, and I joined it about a year after that. Uh, we work to try to help decision makers, both Timorese and international agencies, uh, choose policies based on facts, which will enable Timorese women and men to fully enjoy their economic, social, and human rights. I'm going to cover a lot of material pretty quickly, and we can go into more detail during the discussion, or this presentation with some additional slides is on both ANU's and Lahomutuk's websites, and, and you can download it and look at it later. I'm going to talk first about the current economic situation in Timor-Leste, then about the state budget and the petroleum fund, which supplies most of the money that the state uses. Uh, then we'll look at some future possibilities for oil and gas projects, including Greater Sunrise and the Tasimani project. The graph at the top right of this screen is from a recent FAO publication, and you can see that malnutrition in Timor-Leste is far worse than any other country in Southeast Asia or the Pacific. In fact, uh, more than half of the children under five in Timor-Leste are stunted, and it's a higher rate than every country in the world except for Burundi and Eritrea. It's easy to get caught up in the numbers and the graphs, and I do it all the time, but we shouldn't forget that we're talking about people. Like the girls in the photo, the majority of Timorese people are under 20 years old. They were born after the Indonesian occupation. Most of them live in rural areas and are growing up with inadequate food, poor education, substandard health care, and few employment opportunities. Nevertheless, they all and we all appreciate that they live in an independent, peaceful, free, and democratic nation. Virtually all of the data that I'm going to use in this presentation comes from official sources. When I talk about dollars, I'm talking about US dollars, which is the official currency of Timor-Leste. I don't like to use GDP as a measure because it counts dollars, not people. But GDP is what most academics expect, so I'll talk about it a little bit. This graph shows the components of the non-oil GDP, the GDP excluding petroleum activities, adjusted for inflation and for population. And what you can see is it went up pretty rapidly from 2006 to 2015, but that that growth was all in the two red segments at the top, in construction and public administration, which are almost entirely from state spending. The black line shows what the government spent every year. And it's been going down since 2016. And the GDP has also been, with a few ups and downs, been going down since 2016. The GDP per capita inflation corrected. It's a little different than the absolute number. The productive sectors of agriculture and manufacturing, the green and black at the bottom, are smaller today than they were in independence. Most people are subsistence farmers in Timor-Leste, and they don't have much money. GDP considers them less valuable than employees, bureaucrats, and entrepreneurs. But I don't. This is a, a graph showing what the people of working age, which is defined internationally as 15 to 64, are what they do for their livelihoods in Timor-Leste. And as you can see, less than a quarter of them, the, part, the segments that are pulled out on the right, are in the formal economy. The rest are subsistence farmers or fishers. They don't work for money. They, they may work, but they don't get money for it or their students. And the ones in, who are in the formal economy, roughly equal parts work for the government, for, the pri for private companies, and for very small family businesses like market sellers or, or taxi drivers or kiosks. Although this picture shows a lot of underutilized human potential, it also shows the unlikelihood that business people, such as foreign investors or the oil industry, will be able to drive the entire economy. In the last four years, from 2014 to 2018, the working age population of Timor-Leste went up by more than 10%. During the same period, private sector employment for businesses went down by 15%. This is another effect of the reduced state spending, and it shows how much the economy depends on state spending. People talk a lot about big foreign investment projects like Heineken, TL Cement, Pelican Paradise Tourist Resort, and the Tasimani Petroleum Project. Each one of those, after it's built, will employ fewer people in total than the 2,000 people who enter the labor force every single month. 
clearly need to look for a different way of supporting the economy and to concentrate more on agriculture. If we look at trade, this is the goods, the non-oil goods trade, um, imports and exports for the last, um, what, 15 years. And it's been pretty stable since 2013. We import about $500 million worth of goods, mostly from Indonesia and China. About 2% of them come from Australia. And we export about $20 million a year worth of goods. Most of it is coffee. Uh, oil is not, I mean, there's a few bars for oil in here because that's what the statistics director reported, but it's not tracked consistently because it's sold at sea or gas through a pipeline. The trade authorities don't monitor it. And also until the middle of 2019, it was from an area of disputed sovereignty and people would debate whether that was carried as part of Timor-Leste or not. If we look at services trade, the imbalance is similar. And for the last eight years, Timor-Leste's balance of payments, including goods and services, but not including oil or investment income, has been about negative $1 billion every year. When Timor-Leste no longer has the oil money to fill that gap, won't be able to pay for imports, there'll be a smaller deficit, but the impact on families will be devastating if local food production is not markedly improved. Um, there's a lot of numbers on here, but I tried to highlight in color the ones that are important. Basically, Dili, which is the, the yellow stripe across the middle, people there are much better off than people in the rest of the country, even though only a very small number of them are wealthy by Australian or American standards. 60% of Dili's population is among the richest 20% of the country's population. And only 7% of the people in Dili are below the poverty line but more than half of the families in the rest of the country cannot afford to pay for their basic necessities. I mentioned that most of Timor-Leste's non-oil economy is fueled by state spending. The red line shows how much was budgeted for each year and the green line shows how much was actually spent. Spending rose very rapidly in 2012 and continued to grow until 2016, but then it declined through 2020. This year's budget at the top right there envisions a big increase, but we don't yet know if it will be executed or not. The purple dotted line is recurrent spending, spending on personnel, on supplies, on day-to-day -day government operations. It continues to go up even as the total government spending goes down. And the black dashed line at the bottom is the estimated sustainable income from the petroleum fund, from Timor-Leste Sovereign Wealth Fund. And it represents the amount of money which can be withdrawn from the fund every year without depleting its long-term balance. It's a legally defined uh, formula in the petroleum fund law based on the current balance and anticipated future re revenues from oil and gas. And what you can see is that it's, the spending is way above the estimated sustainable income. This is what they're spending it on. Six weeks ago, Timor-Leste enacted its state budget for this year, the second largest budget in the country's history almost $2 billion. For years, every government from different political parties has said that their priorities were health, education, water supply, and agriculture. But this year, only 18% of the appropriations are allocated to those four sectors combined, which is a little better than in past years. But international good practice says that at least 20% of state spending should go for education and at least 10% for health. So we're about half of good practice. And if we compare it with Australia, Australia allocates 13% of government spending to education, which is a little more than Timor-Leste, 10%. But in Timor-Leste, 38% of the population are school-age kids between five and 19. In Australia, it's 16%. So one would expect to spend more when you have more kids in school. Agriculture, which is the principal livelihood of about two thirds of Timorese families and produces essential food, which could address both malnutrition and the trade deficit, gets about 2% of public spending this year. It's quite a bit more than in previous years, but still much less than what's needed. And just a note, the numbers in this graph probably don't match other numbers that you've seen because it's a functional allocation. It's not a, it doesn't follow the government structure. 
So education is not just the two ministries of education, but it's also the university and scholarships and money given to local governments for education. We tried to, to see what actually is being spent on, on a particular sector. To pay for these expenditures, the state budget uses domestic revenues, taxes, and user fees, uh, gets a little bit of direct budget support from donors, borrows money from international financial institutions, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank in Japan. However, all of those factors cover less than 15% of the total expenditure. And the remaining area, what's left, what's called the non-oil fiscal deficit, is covered by transferring money from the petroleum fund, which is the five slices that are green colored on the graph. The two largest ones on the left are the estimated sustainable income at the bottom and the withdrawal above the estimated sustainable income that's above it. Um, then the two on the lower right, the cash balance and carryover are money that was taken out of the petroleum fund in past years, but wasn't used. So it's being used in this year's budget. And the brick colored green and yellow uh, segment toward the right is borrowed money. It's money that Timor-Leste is going to borrow that it will have to repay. And since its major source of money is the petroleum fund, that's what's going to be used to repay it. It's actually even less domestic revenues than this slide shows, but I won't take the time to go into it now. If we consider the petroleum fund as part of the state, there's no reason to see it. When, it, when they look at the budget, they look at it as if the petroleum fund was something separate, but it's actually part of the state. It's owned by the state. Then this is the income and outgo that the state has. Uh, the red and white checked bars are the oil and gas revenues received each year. In 2020, they were about one-tenth of what they were at their peak level in 2012. And they fall to zero when Bioundan, which has been the source of 93% of the revenues received so far, drives up in a couple of years. Although Santos, the Australian company that operates Bioundan now, plans to deal, drill three more wells later this year to suck up, suck up the last puddles of oil and gas, they're not going to generate much income for Timor-Leste because the cost of drilling wells will be subtracted out of whatever revenues might come to Timor-Leste. The bars with the blue diagonal stripes are the investment return from investing the petroleum funds money. It's invested mostly in overseas stocks and bonds. And they go up and down as the international financial markets do. They did very well in the last two years. They lost money in 2015 and 2018. And Nobody can predict what's going to happen in the future. The black line is how much the government spent each year, and the red line is how much was withdrawn from the petroleum fund each year. And where the black line is higher than the bars, as it was in 2015, 2016, 2018, 2021, and other future projections, uh, it means that the country is spending down its, its wealth. It's spending more than what the than it's coming into the petroleum fund, and it will get depleted. This is um, sort of a summary of the petroleum fund. The red line is the balance in the fund. In the 15 years that it's been operating, it's received $23 billion in oil and gas income, $8 billion in returns on investments. It's $12 billion has been taken out to pay for 86% of state activities. And there's $19 billion remaining in the fund as of the beginning of January. The red line is the balance of what's in the fund. And the blue bars show how much has been taken out each year. The black bar is the sustainable part of what was taken out. And you can see that every year, except for 2013, more was taken out than was considered sustainable. And that the projections from 2022 until 2025, or even from this year, from 2021 until 2025, is to take out about four times the sustainable amount each year. This is all the Ministry of Finance numbers, but their projections are not always very accurate. So hopefully in this case, they'll turn out not to be very accurate. Ministry of Finance only projects five years ahead, but people want to know, well, how long is the fund going to last? And so we did some modeling and we think it maybe has about 10 years before it goes down to zero. And the Ministry of Finance has also done some modeling and they published different scenarios and some of them agree with with that prediction. Others are, are more optimistic. Uh, this table just basically has some of the numbers behind the graph and I'm not gonna go through them again, but if you wanna look at the PowerPoint and see what the actual numbers are, you can do that later. 
This is about the income from oil and gas. Uh, Timor Leste got lucky with Biowindan. It was built when oil prices, the red line, and construction costs were very low. And it produced its oil. The black line is the amount of oil and barrels equivalent produced each year uh, when oil prices were very high. So for a while, it was the most profitable project in the history of ConocoPhillips, this huge global international oil company. But like any non-renewable resource, it inevitably, inevitably will run out. And Timor-Leste has already received about 99% of the money it'll ever get from Bioenda. The green line shows how much money Timor-Leste got each year from oil and gas. And what you can see is it went up quickly, but behind a few years behind production, behind the black line, because the capital costs of building the pipeline, building the Darwin LNG plant, building the wells at Bioenda and had to get paid off. And, and that took until 2007. And then the money went up rapidly. It sort of followed prices going up rapidly. When prices dropped in 2009, the money dropped also. Um, and it peaked in 2012. But since 2015, prices have been falling, production have been falling, and revenues are falling even faster. Because as the field gets close to being depleted, it's more expensive to, to extract each barrel of oil. So by 2019, when the Maritime Boundary Treaty with Australia came into effect, and Australia stopped taking 10% of the money that it was taking before that, there wasn't much left for Timor-Leste to, to get. Because Timor-Leste has gotten a lot of money from oil and gas, because it relatively a lot of money, it depends so much on oil and gas revenues, people think of it as an oil-rich country, but it's not. If we look at other nearby countries, and I just took Australia and Brunei, um, they have, Australia, for example, has what, 500 times as many barrels of oil as Timor-Leste has. Brunei has about 80 times as much. And even after you correct for population, Australia has more than Timor-Leste does, and Brunei has way more. Uh, I put Indonesia on this table originally. Indonesia's proved oil and gas reserves at the end of 2019 were about 11,000 uh, million barrels. Uh, but Indonesia has so many people that when you divide it per person, it's, it's actually not that much. But Indonesia is not a petrostate. This is a map showing the oil and gas areas in the Timor Sea and a little bit on land. Uh, the red line is the Maritime Boundary Treaty. The darker colored shapes, orange, green, purple, uh, and yellow shapes are current oil and gas contracts, although only bio and down, the purple one at the bottom is the only one that's operating right now. Most of the other areas are speculative. The most geologically promising parts of this area have been explored by oil companies for a very long time, both through seismic exploration, that's what all the green lines on the map are, and under previous contracts, which are the light gray and, and light blue shaded areas. Those are areas that companies have had contracts in the past, did some exploration and in many cases drilled wells and decided it wasn't a commercially viable project. It wasn't worth investing enough money to start producing whatever little oil and gas, if there was any at all, that was there. And so in the last bidding round, in the 2006 bidding rounds, no company that had already been active in this area even submitted a bid. And they know the geology better than anybody else. Right now, Timor-Leste is conducting another bidding round. It's been delayed for many years. It's due, bids are due in October this year. It covers pretty much all of the territory that's not already under contract, both on land and on, on shore. If we look around the world at, at oil test wells, exploration wells for oil and gas, about between 10 and 20% of them find something that's commercially viable, it's worth exploring. And Timor-Leste is about similar experience. Since 1970, there have been 80 exploration wells drilled in Timor-Leste's territory, even though sometimes it was occupied by somebody else. Um, the black circles on this map show some of them. Of those 80 wells, eight commercially viable reserves were found. So that's 10%. So when we're talking about potential future fields, future projects like the next draft, we should remember that it's not that high a probability that you're actually going to find something. So this I won't go through this in detail, but the top two 
are definitely happening. The companies have committed to the invest the money. Uh, one is keeping BioNDI running for another couple of years. Another is additional wells to improve production in BioNDI, but that won't produce much in the way of revenues. Greater Sunrise, um, there's no commitment to go ahead with it, but everybody seems to think that they want to go ahead with it. And the, the uh, field there is pretty well established. It's been delayed for political reasons. Um, Buffalo and the, ne the next two, Buffalo and Onshore, will probably be have test wells drilled this year. Um, they have estimates for how much it will be. Buffalo actually was operated uh, until 2005 by another company. They gave it up. Now there's a new company, Carnarvon, that thinks it can get more oil out of Buffalo, but only 31 million barrels. It's not a lot more oil. Uh, Chudich is a potential gas field that's already been rejected by two companies that Timor Gap thinks, the national oil company thinks that they can um, get something out of it, but it's very speculative. And there's three other contract areas that um, are pretty unlikely. In some cases, there have been wells drilled that came out dry. In other cases, that the companies have put them way back on the schedule. So if we look at the four projects that actually could produce revenue, they'll generate a total, if everything works out, which is unlikely but possible, about $1.3 billion in revenues to Timor-Leste. That's how much Timor-Leste received in petroleum revenues during the last three months of 2012. It might be enough to finance a state budget for one year, but it's not any long-term solution to the country's problems. Let me talk a little bit about Greater Sunrise um, because that's the biggest field that's, that we know exists and it's been discovered, was discovered in 1974 but the development was delayed by Indonesia's occupation and then by Australia's occupation of Timor-Leste's maritime territory. And because Timor-Leste wants to develop it with a pipeline, the yellow line on the, on the map, to an onshore LNG plant that they want to build in, in Biasu on the south coast, the oil companies thought they'd make more money if they built it with a pipeline to, to Darwin and use the existing LNG plant that's being used for BioUndan when BioUndan's finished, although that option may not be there anymore. Uh, or building a floating LNG plant right on the field. That was something Shell particularly was interested in. But because there was no agreement, the, the project stopped. And after the Maritime Boundary Agreement, with the treaty was signed in, in 2018, it took effect in 2019, the companies were still reluctant to do a pipeline to Timor-Leste. So Timor-Leste took $650 million out of its petroleum fund lent it to Timor Gap, the national oil company. And the national gap paid it to ConocoPhillips and Shell in order to get a 57% share of the project. So Timor-Leste is now the 57% owner of BioNDN, of, of Sunrise. To develop Sunrise will cost probably at least $10 billion in capital investment, whatever modality is used. And Timor-Leste is responsible for 57% of that. Woodside and Osaka Gas have to come up with the rest of it. It's not a decision that anybody's made so far. There's no financing that's come up for it. And actually last July, Woodside, which is still the operator for Greater Sunrise, uh, filed a, a notice with the stock regulators that it now values the Sunrise project at zero. The LNG plant in Bayasu and the pipeline to it are part of a project that some people in Timor-Leste have been promoting for about a decade called the Tasi Mani project. It also includes an oil refinery in Batano, a, a logistics supply base in Swai, 150 kilometer long highway on the South coast, two airports, three new towns, ports, onshore oil pipelines and other components. It's often presented as a package, but each component should be decided on its own merits. And Sunrise could be developed without the airports, the supply base, the highway, or the refinery. Policymakers in Timor-Leste have not carried out comprehensive, unbiased, independent cost-benefit risk analyses of each component, economic, fiscal, social, and environmental impacts. They have not compared alternative ways to develop the project or considered the lost opportunity costs by putting all of the country's eggs in one basket. A project like this creates social conflict, uses up valuable agricultural land, displaces people, it endangers public health, it degrades the environment, and of course, is a risk of accidents. 
and nearly all of the money spent on the project will go to foreign companies. It'll provide hardly any local jobs or contracts. And actually studies show worldwide the petroleum industry, because it's so capital intensive, creates fewer jobs per dollar invested than any other possible investment. Brett Inder, who I think is on this call, has estimated that estimating investing money to improve coffee production in Timor-Leste would employ six times as many people and simulate six times as much GDP growth per dollar spent as the same amount invested in Timor in Tasimani. And of course, the oil industry is changing, COVID is changing things, climate change is changing things. And so to build a project that's gonna be operational for 30 years is, is a, a big risk that really needs to be analyzed carefully. We tried to figure out how much it would cost to do the capital investment for the Tasimani project. And it comes up by our estimates to about $19 billion, about the same amount of what's in the petroleum fund. The documents published by the government, the budget documents only show about 12% of that. And most of the 12% is the money that was used to buy into the shares in the Greater Sunrise Joint Venture. So you can see on this table, there are a lot of parts of Tassie money, but the only ones that have been built or even have contracts for up to now are the airport in Swai and the first fifth of the highway. The airport is not used and overgrown with weeds. The highway separates people from their families and their farms, and it slid down the hill with the first heavy rain. Many more people have already been displaced from their homes and their farms in anticipation of other components of Tasimani, and nobody has agreed to come to invest any money in it. Last May, the restructured government in Dili replaced the petroleum minister, the head of the National Petroleum and Minerals Authority, and the head of the Timor Gap National Oil Company. And the new men say that previous studies are biased and that an objective, thorough review should be done of Tasimani before proceeding further. However, the state budget that was just enacted in December for this year plans that the construction of the supply base will start in 2022. So there's again a disconnect between plans and, and political rhetoric, as there is in a lot of countries. No matter what development path Timor Leste takes, what a uh, possible development path, I would say oil and gas or extractive industries is not a possible one. Um, the most important thing, the essential thing that has to be done first is to enhance the value of the country's most precious resource, its people. Investing in the young population for nutrition, education, healthcare is an immediate necessity. In the medium term, agricultural and and local industrial production can reduce imports and community-based tourism could generate some foreign exchange. There are some people in the government who understand that nothing can provide the $3 billion a year that Timor-Leste once got from non-renewable oil and gas. Last August, the government adopted an economic recovery plan, recover from pandemic prevention measures. And it says, and I'm quoting now, for Timor-Leste to grow, grow continuously in an inclusive and sustainable way, more and better ways must be found to strengthen its production capacity and diversify its economy outside the oil sector. The message is simple. We must rely less on our natural resources and rely more on what we can produce with our own sweat, creativity, and imagination, which would imply more resources devoted to tourism, agriculture, and manufacturing. The author of that report was Rui, is Rui Gomez. And he was appointed Minister of Finance a month after the report was released. So I think I'll stop there. Thank you for your attention. Um, these are kids on the south coast of Timor-Leste where the, in Biasu, where the, the uh, LNG plant will probably displace them if it happens. There's a lot more information on Lamutuk's website and there are many knowledgeable people in this webinar. So I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Charlie, we would, uh, you know, if you were in person, we'd give you a round of applause. So we'll give you a virtual round of applause. You really covered a lot uh, in, in, and you stuck to the time limit uh, perfectly. So thank you very much. Uh, let's go to the questions uh, that we've got. And the first one is actually from our colleague, Hal Hill. So the question is about table 2.6, uh, which was your point about Dilly being uh, very rich which I think you might have couched in terms of wealth, but I think Hal's- Yeah, no, it, it, is, it is wealth. It's, it's from the Demography and Health Survey, and they asked people how many cows do you have and how big your house is and, and what kind of floor do you have on the house and things like that. So 
Yeah, it, no, it's wealth. They, they assigned a cash amount. If your house is made of concrete, it has one value. If it's made of Baybach, it has a different value and so on. There's a fairly complicated methodology to try to figure out how much wealth people have, even if they don't have a bank account. And that's what it's based on. Yeah, so it's that asset index. So I hope that answers your question, Hal. Otherwise, please come back. Uh, we've got a few more questions um, in the Q&A. But we did actually uh, have someone put up their hand during the presentation. So I might give the floor uh, to Jerry Kourvisanos uh, to ask uh, your question. And just keep it very brief because we do have 140 people here. Yeah. Hi, Charlie. Um, as an economist, and, you know, we've talked a lot, and I agree with, uh, with, uh, uh, with all your analysis about um, Timor-Leste, and thank you for updating me on all that and updating um, um, all of us on the webinar. I do have a query on the um, political economy of with the new government. Um, it did promise that it would shift its emphasis much more on the areas that you've identified, health, education, water, agriculture, you did say in passing that the new budget had improved um, on the spending in this area, you said 18%. I'm interested first about how much they've improved. My, my gut feeling, and I haven't got the statistics, is they've improved it by about doubling. It was very, very low in the previous government. How much have they improved it? And the second question is, um, my understanding is you can't, turn it off and on like a tap very quickly. Um, even if you wanted to spend on these areas, you've got to do it fairly slowly for it to have maximum benefit. You've got to have people on the ground. You've got to do, you've got to get it all right to be able to spend it. So I'm not sure if you could turn on the tap really quickly. So maybe, and this is a question to you the second, maybe the amount that they've improved it is a step in the right direction that they need to keep improving. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I can give you some numbers if you want. The education expenditure in 2020 was 111 million, 112 million. In 2021, what's budgeted is, is 189 million. So that's a significant increase. In agriculture, um, it went up from, well, last year was very low. But it's been averaging around $20 million a year. This year, it's $41 million. What's in the budget, of course, isn't necessarily what's executed. A lot of times, things that are in the budget aren't executed. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. The percentage hasn't gone up so much, but the amount total budget amount has gone up a lot, so that the dollar numbers have gone up. But as far as whether they're serious about doing it in the political, political economy, um, I've learned from living in the U.S. for many decades and also from living in Timor-Leste for 20 years, that politicians lie all the time or politicians make promises that they don't actually take actions to fulfill. And so I think it's a little too early to know. I mean, the new government uh, has replaced all the CNRT ministers with Fredland ministers. There's some very good people, Rui Gomez, who I mentioned, who are in that government. Um, they have about two years, two and a half years before they have to go before the voters. Um, so how much they can do in that time, it'll, it'll be a challenge. You know, the strategic development plan was enacted in 2011. It's supposed to go from 2011 to 2030. So we're halfway through the period of the strategic development plan. There's been no evaluation, no assessment about whether it's being met or not. If you look at the targets that are listed, almost none of them have been met. And I think there's a real reluctance among many people in Timor-Leste to actually deal with the hard questions of running an economy and running a government. Now, whether that's gonna change with the new folks who are in power now, uh, well, it remains to be seen. I mean, Talmatan Rourke has been prime minister already for three years. He was president for five years before that. He's not a new person to this, uh, but it remains to be seen, um, you know, what, what they're able to do and what they, what they really try to do. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jerry, and thank you, Charlie. We have now got um, a large number of questions uh, in the Q&A, and I think the best way, Charlie, is to just work your way down the list. So I'm just going to click on all these questions so everyone can see them. And um, 
leave you to work your way through them, Charlie? Okay, yeah, I mean, the first one, that's a big question. Uh, and I don't know the answer. I don't know that anybody knows the answer. I mean, they have $19 billion. So when petroleum revenues dry up, there's a little bit of a cushion that'll last about 10 years. After that, um, it's very hard to know. I'm not sure why anybody would give them a loan if they have no possibility of paying it back. So that, I'm not sure that's an option. Um, drawing down the petroleum fund, yeah, that's, that's what it's already happening. It's, it's what's going to happen. They, they lucked out this year because the stock market went crazy, but it, all of the projections were that the balance at the end of 2020 was going to be lower than it was at the start of 2020. And then what is, is the big question? Uh, I see Jen Drysdale's question. It's good to, to hear from you or to, to see you for your name anyway, virtually. Whether Sunrise will ever be developed or not, I don't know. There's two issues. One is if it's going to be developed as a commercial, commercially viable project, which requires Woodside and other investors to think they can make enough money out of it to justify investing in it through whatever development methodology there is. Uh, the option of a pipeline to Darwin is probably closed now because Santos wants to use the Darwin LNG plant for another field called Barossa in Australian waters. Um, so floating LNG was promoted largely by Shell. Shell is gone now, they're not part of the project anymore. So it's hard to see what other options of sunrise development there are. But as I said, there hasn't been a real study of what the different options are, of how much money will be made from them. The studies that have been promoted and used done by Asil Allen for Timor Gap a few years ago are totally biased. And they took all of Timor Gap's assumptions and, and say this, the study's full of footnotes. It says, we don't vouch for this. This is what we're told and so we're working with. And so until there's a study, I, I can't answer uh, whether Sunrise would be, be beneficial or not. And then if it is beneficial, the question is how to develop it. Sarah's question, Indication of the government reviewing economic strategy. I mean, maybe appointing Rui Gomez as finance minister maybe is an indication of that. He wasn't, the, Fernando Hanjan was the finance minister in the restructure and then he got ill and he resigned. And so Rui got appointed later. He hasn't been there that long. Um, but so we'll see. I'm just looking at other questions. Uh, you know, I can't predict the future. I'm, my numbers are mostly about the past. So I, it's hard to know. Uh, Ashley asked about Waikusi. Yeah, the government spent a lot of money on, on Waikusi. It was an autonomous special zone. Uh, they built an airport, a power plant, a very nice looking bridge, uh, good roads. Very little of the money has trickled into the local economy and there's very little economic development as a result of the half a million dollars roughly that was spent in an area where 60,000 people live. Kelly's question, taking into the uh, economic recovery, prioritizing this on PLEO people. Uh, maybe, I mean, the economic recovery plan was put out in August, right? And approved by the Council of Ministers. This 2020 state budget was proposed in September. The 21, 2021 state budget was proposed in October. They don't really reflect the orientation that the economic recovery plan did. Maybe it's because the process of preparing it was already started, but you know, we'll have to wait and see um, how, that, how that goes. Jen asked about onshore oil exploration. I mean, they don't even know if there is anything onshore. They haven't drilled test wells. They were supposed to drill test wells last year. It got delayed because of COVID. Um, the plan now is to start doing in the middle of this year. The legislation to regulate onshore operations and the environmental legislation and the community information legislation, it's there, it's nowhere near as strong as it should be. And the people who are conducting those operations, Timor Resources, is a company that was just created for this project. And the people running it have zero experience in the oil and gas industry. Uh, it's an Australian company, you all can look into it. It's not a publicly traded company. It's a privately held company, but it, they do have a website, you can, you can see. Uh, they're partners with Timor Gap. Timor Gap also has zero experience. And a few years ago, I asked, well, the now ex-president, then he was president of Timor Gap, why did you go with Timor Resources? Why didn't you go with some company that has done this before that you can learn from? And he told me, 
and I guess this was off the record, but since he's not in that position anymore, I guess I can tell the story. He said, we tried. We talked to more than 40 companies and nobody was interested. So as to what the prospects are or how well it will be managed, we don't really know. The number that I put in, was it 30 million barrels, is what Timor Resources says that they think is there. Uh, I didn't try to make up my own estimate. Uh, politics of the government deciding to significantly ag increase agricultural funding. Um, I think some people in government realize that agriculture is one of the most realistic sectors. I mean, the, the agriculture census that they did a couple of years ago shows that 66% of the population does farming, right? Some of it is, most of it is subsistence. It's for themselves or their neighbors, but uh, it's by far the largest uh, part of the economy, not by counting dollars, but by counting people. And so that it's gonna be happening even if the government doesn't put money into it. Questions from the Norwegian Embassy in Jakarta. How much of the state budget is used for energy imports? Ah, yes, this is an interesting question because Norway, as, as you know, and Rubik knows, and probably other people don't, Norway used to have an alternative energy project in Timor-Leste, uh, hydroelectric and some other things. And they canceled it about five years ago when they couldn't even get the government to meet with them when they would come to, to Italy. It was a $25 million project and they would come to Dili. And this is at the time that Shinano was prime minister and they couldn't even get meetings. The country pays for importing the diesel fuel that's used to power the national electric grid. It's in the order of 80 to $100 million a year. I mean, diesel prices go up and down, so it's not consistent, but it's in that, in that order. Uh, so I think that's probably as, as much of an answer I can give to your question in the time we have. Um, Brett, about future oil revenue potential. Yeah, I mean, I when I looked at the fields that have already got contracts and have already got companies that are committed to work on them, and it came up to $1.3 billion, but that includes $200 million from, from Bayouandan without the new wells. So it's only $1.1 billion from new projects. Um, of course, it's always possible that somebody will find something that wasn't noticed before, but I think it's pretty unlikely. And, and the numbers I'm using are the numbers that the companies use. I mean, when they're trying to attract investment, they exaggerate the numbers, especially the companies that aren't publicly traded. There's no control on how much they can exaggerate. Companies that are publicly traded get in trouble if they lie about the reserves, but companies like Timor Resources, uh, have, there's no nobody controlling them on stuff like that. Let's see how hell the money doesn't match the promises. I'm saying because they say that their priorities are education, health, water supply, and, and agriculture, and they allocate uh, less than a fifth of the budget to that. That's that's what I meant by that. Dili um, has high living standards. Can we unpack the political economy and development priorities? That's a very big question, and it's. I mean, politics and political economy is, I, I can talk about politics, I'm not sure this is the appropriate venue. Uh, but just in general, and this is maybe anthropology or history, I don't know, I'm, I'm an engineer by training, I don't know about this stuff, but uh, if you look around the world at any country that came out of centuries of foreign rule, and then a generation or longer war for independence, it takes at least another generation before things stabilize and you get good governance and good policies and things that meet the, the needs of the people. I mean, Zimbabwe is the most recent example of how bad it can be. But you can look to countries like the United States, like Ireland. It's not only third world countries that go through this, pretty much every country in Africa. Indonesia wasn't a stable democracy for what, 30 some years, 40 some years after, after it became independent. Uh, Part of the problem, a big part of the problem, is that the people who are the leaders of the independence struggle have a skill set that's designed for that, for combat, for clandestine activity, for making decisions based on what you know. You can't do a feasibility study to figure out if the Indonesian military is about to kill you or not. But those people are national heroes. And as long as they're interested in being political leaders, they will be. And they don't have the right skill set for governing in a peacetime democracy or working out sustainable economic development. Now, Timor-Leste is nearing the end of that phase of its history. Those people are all in their 70s now. They'll be players for a while, but they won't be players forever. There's a younger generation of military leaders also. Uh, 
who weren't the original ones, people like Taramat Anruak and Luolo, who were part of the resistance, but not part of the beginning of the resistance. Uh, they'll be around a little longer. Uh, but there's a whole new generation of people that have grown up in peacetime. The majority are born in peacetime, but, but certainly a large majority have been educated in peacetime. And have had, many have had a chance to go and study overseas, including some at AMU, um, some who are probably on this call. And as those people mature and as they reach higher levels of decision-making policy, the political economy of the country is going to change. The question is, is that going to happen fast enough to avoid running out of money that they have in the petroleum fund? And this is an advantage they have over almost every other country that's in this situation, that they have that cushion. But it's sort of a race between sensible economic policy, policy and diversification and changing policymakers and using up the money. And, and I don't know what's going to happen first. Uh, Charlie, I'll just uh, give you a little chance to catch your breath or have a drink of water. This is, uh, I've got to say, this is very efficient because, um, you know, the question is of, uh, you're only, you know, you're reading the questions quickly, you're giving quick responses, so we're getting through a lot of very interesting questions. And then it's great you went to political economy. There are a number of questions around that. People are still adding in questions. We're up, we've still got 30 to go. So I don't know if we're going to get through all of them. I'll also say that uh, Charlie's slides are uh, up on the uh, website, on our Deaf Policy website with the notes. So do, uh, if you have comments, questions that don't get addressed, please do send them in because, as I said, this is a draft and uh, we'll be working, uh, Charlie will be revising this based on the comments he gets uh, before it's published uh, in our journal. Yeah. I did, uh, just scrolling down, I did see a comment from Jen Drysdale. Uh, hey, Stephen, I just wanted to make sure that Charlie knows that we're grateful for his work and commitment over the years, not just for the seminar today. So that's very appropriate, and certainly we are. So well, thanks, thanks, Jen. I mean, that's why we do this work. I mean, we, we publish in English so that folks like the folks here can can have access to information because a lot of it comes from materials that were just published in Tetum. If people have questions or suggestions or ideas uh, and want to email me, if you email charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, at lauhamutuk, L-A-O-H-A-M-U-T-U-K, all one word, dot O-R-G, uh, I'll try to answer them or at least refer you to something that answers them. Um, let's go back to the questions. Are there other countries that you think demolition should look to emulate in their movement away from oil dependency? When Timor Leste was designing its petroleum fund in 2004, 2005, there were lots of international advisors, experts in this area. And I used to ask them that question. I said, well, what can we look to as a model of how to do it right? And the answer that came from lots of different places was Botswana. And Botswana, of course, is not an oil producing country. It's a diamond producing country. And diamonds are totally different than oil in the global economy. Countries' economies don't depend on diamonds, they're not addicted to it. The total global diamond trade is like 1% of the total global oil trade. And so, as far as countries that have done it well, there's not good examples. I think Timor Leste has actually started out anyway doing it better than most. The petroleum fund and the transparency around oil revenues, all the information that I've been showing is from public documents, so it's not secretive. No significant amount of money has gone stolen or missing. You know, they're, they're doing pretty well, but that doesn't, not sure that that's enough. And actually in the last couple of years, their, their score on various petroleum management indices has been going down compared with what it was. It used to be one of the best in the world. Now it's sort of in the middle. Uh, Joaquim Soriano, US dollar. Yeah, there's a, I think the US dollar was a problem when the IMF brought it in in 2001. I mean, that was before Timor Leste had its own government and the IMF decided the US dollar was better than the messy black market circulation of rupiah and Australian dollars that was going on. Um, at this point, it's a hedge for Timor Leste because the country is so much entangled with the global oil industry, which runs in US dollars. So if Timor Leste had some other currency, euros or Australian dollars, then it would have to deal with the exchange rate between US dollars and that currency because the oil prices fluctuate a lot with that. So now when the oil price goes down, the dollar goes up and Timor Leste's money gets, uh, buys more imports, um, so it balances out. And there are also questions that people ask about whether 
the, the economy and the experience of the people who would be in charge of man managing their own currency uh, would be able to get a currency that would be trusted for a billion dollars worth of imports every year. Um, so I don't know that. Health expenditure, Belinda, let's see, I have the numbers here. Health expenditure this year will be $105 million. Last year it was 67 million. The year before it was 75. The year before that it was 78, 75. It was around 75, 2017 to 2019. 2020 was a funny year because the state budget wasn't adopted until the end of October. So it's not a not a good reference. Um, yeah, health is is going up. Donor assistance is not really important. Susanna, there's direct budget support from the European Union of a few, I think it's $10 million. I forget the exact number, but it's that's the only direct budget support. Donor projects, if you look at the combined sources budget, is about equal to 20% of the budget. So the government spending five times as much of its own money as donors are spending. And then donor spending is also very inefficient. It pays for companies back in their home countries. It pays for lots of air travel. It pays for lots of foreign consultants. It doesn't, it, very little of it actually comes into the local economy. We tried to analyze that about 10 years ago and, and came up with the number of 12%. 12% of the monies that donors spent on Timor-Leste actually came into Timor-Leste. Uh, it, it's probably a little higher now, but we don't know. Uh, helium, uh, I don't think that's significant, uh, but I don't haven't looked into it. But if you look at how much helium sells for and what the quantities are, it's probably not relevant. Uh, negotiations with China about Sunrise, that's all behind closed doors. Um, when there have been rumors in the press, uh, the people involved have immediately denied them. There's different people involved now. I don't know. Um, so I don't, I don't want to speculate on something I don't know about. China, uh, I know is a big concern for policymakers in Australia as it is in the US. I just want to put in a a plug that twice in the last century, Timor-Leste got caught in a global conflict that killed tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of their people in World War II and in the Cold War. And in both cases, it was conflicts that they had nothing to do with. Please don't bring Timor-Leste into the battle between Australia and the West and China. Whether it's economic or military or whatever, keep your proxy wars in your own countries. That's not to say that China is not of a concern, but it's to say that it's a different concern maybe then people in Australia have. Charlie, just um, on that, I saw someone asked about whether Timor is joining up to the Belt and Road Initiative. So do you want to address that at the same time? Uh, I can, yeah. There's very little Chinese aid in Timor-Leste. The projects that Australian media seems to think are Chinese aid are mostly projects where Timor-Leste has hired an Australian company to do something, like to build a road. The Chinese aid to Timor-Leste, China's not even in the top 10 donors. Now, we built a few government buildings 10, 15 years ago. We built the, the, the presidential palace and the foreign ministry um, and a few other things, the defense ministry. Uh, but that's a long time ago. These days, there's not much Chinese aid. I think they're sending some, some COVID masks now. That's their, their latest contribution. But uh, it's, it's not a big, a big area. Renewable energy. Um, I don't know, Hugh, you probably know better than I do since you're living there and I'm not right now, but there's a lot of money to be made on importing fuel. And there was a former prime minister who promised and fulfilled his promise to build power plants that would supply electricity to the whole country. Those power plants at Hara and Batano are running at about 10% of capacity. They're way overbuilt. Uh, but to say that they should be shut down for renewable energy, even though renewable energy would be cheaper than operating power plants, it's a very politically sensitive topic. Charlie, right. I might just um, come in again because we are running out of time. I just noticed there are, there are about three questions around labor mobility, uh, which is an issue area we work on at the center. So for example, Paul Hooper asks, the Tongan government has adopted a policy on labor mobility. Do you see labor mobility playing a significant part in Timor-Leste economic recovery? Post-COVID, and Roy Trevetti asks, what's happened to remittances over the past year? Scope to do more with remittances? And Mike Rose has a similar question about what role is there for remittances going forward? Um, maybe this is where I'm, my non-economist perspective on things and my solidarity activist perspective is, is a, contradicts what some of the economists think. 
I think I probably said earlier that Timor Leste's most valuable resource is its people. And it has tremendous needs in the country to build a water system, electricity system, to provide healthcare, to educate the population, so on and so forth. To send the most motivated workers out to work in some Korean factory or to pick mangoes in some Australian farm is to me a waste of Timor Leste's resources. And even if they send a little bit of money back to their families, um, I don't think that, they, that they're making as much of a contribution to the country as they could make if they stayed there. Remittances, uh, you know, they do provide some money. Uh, not much of it goes to the government. It does support it, particularly families in Los Palos that have gotten remittances from the people that are in Northern Ireland and, and the UK. Although Brexit now makes their future a little bit uh, complicated. But um, I think Timor-Leste needs its best workers. They can do a lot more within the country. So at least for me and, and for Lombardia, we don't promote uh, sending workers overseas. Uh, it's okay if somebody goes overseas for a year or two to learn skills and learn a language and learn more about the world, but then they should come back. Of course, it's each individual makes their own decisions, but from a policy point of view, uh, I, I wouldn't want to promote that. I guess I think we could discuss a lot more on that one, Charlie, but I might just direct you to one more question which is uh, from Henry Dienis about what are your thoughts on the government response to COVID? Because we haven't heard much about COVID itself uh, ah, in your talk. Yeah, so. yeah. I actually, I put that in my paper, but I didn't put it in here. Hmm. I think Timor-Leste is a model for the world on how to respond to COVID. They have had zero fatalities. They have had zero community spread. They've had a total of about 80 cases, all on people who just came into the country, all of whom were in quarantine and kept in quarantine until they tested negative or they had enough time to recover. Um, they pretty early on, starting the beginning of, of April, the laws were actually passed in March, adopted a state of emergency so that they could control travel within the country, travel into the country, um, gatherings of large people. They, they renew the state of emergency every month. It's now going to expire in the first week of March. It's... Um, it's changed a little bit from time to time, the, the rules as they learn things and they don't learn things. And there's been a, a scary increase in COVID cases among people coming into the country in the last week or two. There's a, a lot more cases now, I think, than there ever have been. Uh, we don't really know if there's community spread, but if there was, we would know it because the healthcare system cannot deal with a disease like this. And there are a lot of people in Timor-Leste with pre-existing conditions, tuberculosis and things like that. So that if it ever does get into the population, it would be a huge disaster. And I think the government deserves a lot of credit and the people deserve a lot of credit for do taking action quickly and effectively to prevent COVID from spreading in their country. I'm speaking from New York where we have not done so. There are a number of questions, Charlie, around diversification and agriculture. The shortest one's from Janet Hunt, where she says, this is a pretty depressing picture for Timor-Leste's future. Where do you see some positive possibilities? Uh, well, I, that's what I tried to close on, um, that there are at least some people in government now who are saying that they need to focus on agriculture, on education, on healthcare, And that's, you know, if they're able to persuade the other people that, that, that that's the direction that needs to happen. And if they're if people, and, and it's one of the reasons why I did this stuff on future oil projects, if people are able to realize what's a realistic expectation from oil and gas in the future, not what do they want to happen, but what could actually happen, uh, that maybe also will give some incentive to, to look in other directions. Uh, but it's, it's hard. I mean, what's going to make Timor-Leste different from countries that never had any oil, that didn't have those kinds of resources? There are a few that do well. Fiji does pretty well. They, unfortunately, as you mentioned in the beginning, tend to look at places like Singapore as models more than Fiji. And I'm not sure that they can do what Singapore did. They, they're not in the same geostrategic place. They didn't have a British educational system to start with and many other advantages that Singapore has. Um, so I'm not a, a prognosticator. I can't, you know. I can make some suggestions, and, and it's clear that improving education and healthcare are, are necessary for whatever other things happen later. So it's easy to make short-term recommendations. The longer-term recommendations are a little bit harder. All right. Well, I think um, you have got through a lot of the questions. Um, 
there's still, we've still got 17 that we haven't had time to answer. So maybe Charlie, you would pick up a, a, a last sort of one or two, and then we'll have to, to close it, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm just looking at, at a couple of them that are from uh, former Laomutuk staff. There's one from Adilson Ad Costa and one from Gertariano Neves, who's also a new graduate, who are asking, Adilson's asking about what's the increase in the money for agriculture going to be used for. And to be honest, I haven't had time to, to look into that. It's a, it's a very good question, and it's something that needs to be looked at. And Guterriano asked, how do you change policy direction? The challenges that Timor-Leste is facing are enormous and complex. It's not only about the commitment of politicians, but capacity in public administration. Um, the man who asked this question is an advisor in the prime minister's office. If he doesn't know the answer, then I'm not sure that, that I would want to speculate on it. All right, well, that's probably a good note to end on. Uh, for those of you who didn't get to answer your question, uh, we'll certainly make sure that uh, Charles has got, got all of them um, with him. Um, it's been a great session. So thank you very much, Charlie. And uh, please uh, join. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, do stay in touch and send us your feedback and thoughts. Uh, and please join me in giving Charlie a virtual round of applause for his excellent Timor-Leste survey. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Thanks for listening.